Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The two Michaels are here, and uh, there are many questions being asked. Among those questions is, what's it like to be incarcerated in China? What happens to you when you're incarcerated in that country? What are the... uh, what are the circumstances that exist to get you incarcerated in China? They're very different, we hear, to what it may be in this country and in the United States. Peter Humphrey spent two years in prison in China, 2016 to 18, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Peter, thank you very much. How are you? Hi there. Um, well, I'm, I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah, I know you're battling illness, and, and, and your sense is that that illness was exacerbated by our time in Chinese incarceration. Well, I mean, I was I was in prison for two years um, in China on false charges related to the GSK uh, pharmaceutical bribery scandal. I, I had been working for them as a due diligence consultant, and they sent me off to investigate somebody who turned out to be the police informer on, on, on their bribery scheme. Um, so that's what happened to me. And yes, um, I experienced extremely harsh uh, conditions of, of, of uh, incarceration and um, the deliberate withholding of medical treatment, which basically caused me to have cancer. And, and since my release in 2015, I've been um, uh, f- fighting with a lot of, a lot of uh, fallout, physical medical fallout from that experience. But I, I don't really think I want to put myself um, out there as somebody who has suffered as much as... Uh, um, the two Michaels have, because I, I really think I have a lot to say about what they've been through, too. Well, please tell us, what is your sense of what would they have experienced while they were incarcerated in China for 1,020 days? They, they certainly will have experienced extremely harsh conditions. You know, li- the light's on 24-7 for the whole of their confinement and, and uh, very poor, awful food, poor nutrition, um, poor, if any, uh, medical um, attention and so forth. Um, and in, in the pre-trial detention centers in China, generally prisoners are, are made to sleep on a hard, rough wooden floor uh, in a cell with quite a lot of people. I know at the beginning they were on their own in, in a rather special uh, form of, of detention, but I think that later on they were in a more normal detention center with those kinds of conditions. In my own case, um, it was 15 square meter cell with 12 people in the cell, and the toilet was a hole in the floor in the corner of, of, of the cell and so forth. And we did everything on the floor. We sat on the floor, we, we, we slept on the floor, we ate on the floor, you know, and so forth. Um, so extremely harsh. And, and, and the block on things like communication with family and so forth, you know, the lack of very direct communication, um, such as phone calls and correspondence, um, in violation of international conventions, is something they would have had to, had to contend with. And, and, you know, they would have been lucky to get some letters in and out through consular visits. And uh, as we all know, those visits were very, limpid, uh, very limited and, and highly obstructed. So they would have suffered those things. But, you know, um, this was a clear example of state hostage-taking by China from day one, which makes it quite different from my case. And I've always argued that this is the only way it could end with a political decision from China's top leader and to a lesser extent from the United States government. And that is what's happened today. Ms. Meng could have done a plea bargain a long time ago, 
but Beijing certainly did not let her do that. So she was also, I think, certainly a hostage of Xi Jinping in this situation, but in Canada, in addition, ironically, to the two Michaels being hostages in China. And I think it will now be interesting to see whether there are any other quid pro quos coming out of this, such as a lightening of U.S. pressure on China in other areas. But I don't think there will be. I think we're still on a course of confrontation between China and the West. Another thing that stood out for me in, in this case was um, Vina Nadipula. <coughs> She's really the kind of person that every family with somebody arrested in China needs to fight their corner for them. You know, her dedication, her persistence, her discreetness, her, her intelligence, the way she operated behind the scenes was very, very special. And uh, <coughs> I think... Um, she, she is owed great congratulations for her effort. Uh, but for the two Michaels themselves, it's easy to clap and, uh, and celebrate at the release of prisoners when they're released from these kind of conditions. But their suffering and their ordeal will last for a very long time. They will have been very, very badly damaged, both physically and mentally, by their experiences. And I think we, we need to keep that in mind and keep them in our prayers because it won't be easy for them uh, returning to a so-called normal life. That will take time. It's also not the end of legal battles because on the U.S. side we will continue to see Huawei prosecuted, it, even if it's not personally uh, Miss Meng. And for the two Michaels, they can consider taking legal actions against the Chinese government for false imprisonment and multiple forms of abuse. And I think they should also register their cases as cases of arbitrary imprisonment at the UN agency in Geneva that covers this issue. You know, there are many other foreigners, too, imprisoned in China on false charges, including Canadians, other Canadians, some we know about and some we don't. I personally know of several arrested in the same month as the two Michaels whose cases remain covered up, including one from the United Kingdom. So, you know, this sort of idea, ordeal, this sort of ordeal, is far from over with the release of these two brave men. Um, we're going to see a lot more trouble uh, from China in cases like this going forward. There's another case uh, that Canadians need to be aware of, and I spoke about earlier on this program with the former Premier of British Columbia, and that's the case of Ronald Schellenberger, who is a British Columbian, or a Canadian citizen from British Columbia, who is currently under a death sentence in China. He was under a life in prison sentence, and then an appeals court uh, increased the uh, penalty to uh, to death. What are the chances, Peter? Is it likely, is it possible that China would move forward uh, with, with, a, with a death sentence or not? First of all, you know, I mean, it very clearly was also linked to the Huawei case because uh, the timing when Schellenberg appealed and, and then the Chinese judicial authorities suddenly escalated his sentence instead of um, listening to his appeal and just saying no, um, uh, giving him a death sentence instead of a, a, a prison sentence, that was timed in the whole space there around the Meng Wanzhou and, and the two Michaels thing. It's clearly linked. And um, I, I'm sort of mentoring a number of families from various countries who have a member of their family on death row in China. Um, and Schellenberg is not one of them, I must say. But I'm mentoring a number of them. And... and in my experience, foreigners who, who are given the death sentence most of the time don't actually see the sentence implemented. 
they may be kept in a horrific state of suspense for quite some years before um, the sentence is commuted to a life imprisonment sentence. And I know of four or five cases like that at the moment uh, involving Americans and people from some other countries. So China could possibly um, do something to commute Schellenberg's uh, death sentence. Especially, you know, I, I think this needs to be raised by your government because it's very, very clear to me, as, as someone who's been watching China for 46 years, it's very clear that um, Schellenberg's death sentence was actually part of the tit-for-tat coming out of Beijing against Canada over uh, Meng Wanzhou's arrest. Okay. What was your worst day of incarceration in China like? You know, I have to say, Roy, I think every day was my worst day in some respect because, you know, you could never, you could never see light at the end of the tunnel. And until my very last day, I didn't dare to tell myself that I was being released. I would only believe it when I touched ground in the UK. Um, so every day was my worst day. But, I mean, I was very worried about my um, prostate condition. I knew I had this condition and I knew that they were, you know, deliberately withholding um, examinations and, and treatment because um, they, were, they were using this as a method to try and force me, to pressure me to sign confession for a crime I hadn't committed um, and thereby validate their arbitrary uh, incarceration of me. And I came to a a serious state of despair where, you know, knowing my prostate cancer situation, um, I thought I might die in prison. I mean, I didn't know how long I was going to be in there at that point. And so I started to sort of work through in my mind ways I could try and mentor and prepare my son, who was 18 years old when this happened, for something like that, you know, being the ending of this story, um, you know, through communication with my consul and through letters that I was eventually able to write to him, I was trying to mentally prepare him um, to deal with me perhaps not coming home alive. Uh, Maybe that was the worst day. Let us feel the warmth of a new dawn, and above all, let us seize the promise of a brand new day. Merci, mes amis. Thank you, my friends. Merci, tout le monde. Now the former Attorney General is with us. Jody, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Roy? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. Uh, when you hear the Prime Minister talk about a, a new dawn, what, what, what are you hearing? Well, I, I t- that was the, his speech after um, they declared a minority government. I, I mean, I, I think that um, I stand and speak for many Canadians who are still um, wondering why we had an election and um, realizing that uh, the parliament that is um, at some point going to reconvene looks very similar to the parliament that uh, existed before. Um, the the only difference is um, that we've gone through an election that was um, and caused uh, and created um, a lot of division. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, Canadians gave um, Prime Minister 
Trudeau, another minority government, which for me speaks to the reality that Canadians want our politicians to work together and to tackle the big issues. And the only way we're going to do that is if there's more cooperation and, you know, for my part, I believe less partisanship. Yeah. I want to talk to you, obviously, about the book. Let me ask you, though, one other question here out of the gate, then we'll get to the content of the book and and what goes along with it, including now the deferred prosecution agreement that's been offered to SNC-Lavalin, which must be tremendously ironic to you. But uh, let me ask you, first of all, about your sense of the two Michaels. What do you think was going on in Parliament leading to this development? What do you feel about this? Well, I, I, again, I mean, like everybody, when uh, we listened to the Prime Minister speak yesterday and then hearing the, that the two Michaels were on their way back to Canada, I felt relief and happiness. And I mean, seeing some of the, the heartwarming photographs of, uh, of them reuniting with their families um, today, I mean, I couldn't be happier and so grateful that they're back. In terms of of what uh, transpired, I mean, I'm sure, and there's going to continue to be assessment in terms of how things played out, what our relationship is uh, with China. Um, I mean, these are things that are going to continue to to be talked about. And I think um, just with everybody else, I'm just uh, very pleased that they're back and and whatever happened in terms of the, the diplomatic world and with the United States to, to bring this to um, to this reality, um, we should uh, just be grateful right now. There's a lot of discussions that will go on, certainly about uh, um, people's roles and, and what happens in our relationship with uh, with China yeah. in the future. Uh, in Indian in the cabinet, central to your whole story is, of course, the SNC and Lavalin case. And uh, mm-hmm. focusing only on that, and remembering Mr. Trudeau immediately declared the first report by the Globe and Mail that you as Attorney General had been interfered with during your sworn duty as being false, then moving forward through your full experience with the snc Lavalin case, which resulted in a public declaration by the Parliamentary Ethics Commissioner, Mario Dion, that the Premier, Prime Minister rather, indeed had bullied you, and we learned over time what the Globe had reported was indeed not false, that it was true. What does that one event, that one parliamentary episode, tell Canadians? Because what I hear time and again is it tells us the game is rigged or that it can be rigged. Well, I, I, I mean, for me, one of the main reasons why I, I wrote Indian in the Cabinet is to share what I learned within government, to share um, how government operated while I was there. I mean... Um, SNC forms, you know, a significant part of this book and the backdrop to my experience in in government. I mean, for me, um, as the Attorney General, as I stated in the book, I knew clearly, and as I stated publicly, what my role was, and and that was to uphold the rule of law and ensure the independence of the prosecution um, in the face of pressure from many different places. And... um, in that case, um, I certainly did not succumb to that pressure. But it tells us, um, and I think 
for Canadians and in, through writing this book thought a lot about how the inner workings of government operate and how we need to be very vigilant about um, internal dynamics, how decisions are made, whether decisions are made based on the rule of law or whether decisions are made um, for um, pub- or, you know, political expediency um, and how behind closed doors, I mean, there is potential for wrongdoing. So um, I think in terms of having discussions around cabinet confidentiality and principles of confidentiality, what can remains out of sight and what needs to be brought into the light. These are some of the discussions that I that I bring into Indian in the cabinet. And I think that um, are appropriate discussions for for us as Canadians to have in terms of the information that potentially is withheld um, from us by governments when they make decisions about particular issues. Yeah, it's extremely important that we have a sense of what goes on behind the scenes as well. And without you and your experience with the Prime Minister and the PMO over SNC-Lavalin, most of us wouldn't even well, we wouldn't know about this story and we may not have a sense of what the dangers are. It must be deliciously ironic to you in a way that SNC-Lavalin's now been offered at EPA. Well, I, I mean, again, and I certainly don't know the, and I saw that so a couple of days ago along with everybody else. Um, I mean, this is a decision that was made by the prosecutor in Quebec. Um, they have um, the full ability to offer a deferred prosecution agreement to, to those entities within SNC. I don't know the details there. Um, um, it's the prosecution's choice. To, to do so based on the circumstances that are before them. Um, so we'll see we'll see what happens in that regard. Of course, um, the SNC um, affair that uh, I was involved with was um, a federal prosecution, and um, uh, the person that I dealt with was the director of public prosecution who determined it wasn't appropriate in that case to enter into uh, a remediation agreement with, with SNC. Yeah. And well, I upheld that decision. It starts to look like a giant game of snakes and ladders, actually. Uh, could you remind us about that moment that you realized Mr. Trudeau wanted you to lie? And did you understand, I'm sure you did, but I want, I want to hear from you. Did you understand that your future as a senior cabinet member of government hinged on doing as you were expected to do? You were doing your duty when you challenged the, um, the pressure from the PMO, And yet here you were, your very position as the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General was hinging upon, as if I understand this correctly, on you were uh, signing on to the Prime Minister and uh, lying for him. Well, I I mean, a lot of this had um, transpired before those series of meetings that I had that led to my resignation um, in February of of 2019. was prior to that and um, when I was still the the attorney general in December of, of 2018 that's when I had that that t- telephone call with the clerk of the the Privy Council and my feeling at the time was I was just hyper aware of all of the um, exertions of pressure around me um, and I needed to uh, I mean I was very clear in my decision and um, was ensuring that I did everything I can to um, ensure that the prosecution remained independent um, but at the time when I um, I was then Minister of Veterans Affairs when I had that series 
so series of meetings with Justin Trudeau, I and I recount in the book very clearly what I felt in that room based on the conversations that I was having with the prime minister in that moment. And um, uh, I recount how I felt and, and certainly Canadians can judge for themselves based on what I've written, the extensive public record around SNC, in my testimony, the ethics commissioner's report, and, you know, judge for themselves and based on the record of, of this government. Jody, the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation is coming up next week. Uh, when you were on the air with me in June, we talked about reconciliation and the need to properly communicate uh, with Indigenous peoples what do you? What's your sense about the sincerity uh, within the Liberal Party, within the government of Canada, about following through on this and really creating a kind of dynamic that needs to exist? Well, I, I try to remain optimistic in terms of uh, hoping that uh, the government is going to do the right thing and, and follow through on its promises. Um, you know, Indigenous issues, I believe, um, should be nonpartisan issues, and I'm hopeful that all members of Parliament are going to advocate on behalf of, of advancing a framework for rights recognition. Um, but this government, they've been in office for six years. There were extraordinary transformative pro- um, promises in terms of the relationship with Indigenous peoples based on the recognition of rights and creating space for Indigenous peoples to be self-governing within a stronger Canada. We haven't seen that. Um, The Prime Minister promised on February the 14th of 2018 to change laws and policies and practices of government to enable that to happen, and it hasn't. Um, So, and there's a lot of of mistrust. Um, There's a lot of expectations, and rightfully so, among Indigenous peoples for the government to actually um, follow through with its promises. Um, And, you know, in advance of September 30th, and in the wake of the revelations of the mass graves, we have to do something about this. Canadians, um, more than ever, are wanting the government to do the right thing, and I'm are going to to lead you know the government and lead to the elected leadership to actually follow through and not just um, put forward um, you know various forms of symbolism in terms of addressing or not addressing issues but actually put some substance behind um, the symbolism that we see far too much of and not enough action we need action on these issues and as you write uh, in the book um, no longer uh, should you be hearing deny, delay, distract as you're growing up as a First Nations person? Yeah, I, I mean, the longer that we simply do not um, deal with um, Indigenous issues, that we do not um, do as we have with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms some 35-plus years ago and, in, and recognize um, in that our Constitution in Section 35 recognizes and affirms Aboriginal and treaty rights. Um, we need to change the laws in this country and the policies in order for Indigenous peoples to be self-determining, which is what um, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples means. Uh, we need to move out from the colonial shadow of the Indian Act, for example, and we need to see leadership that is going to be um, 
enable this change to happen. We haven't seen that yet. Um, if uh, this prime minister, if Justin Trudeau does do what he promised to do over six years ago, um, I know I will be and, and so many Indigenous peoples will be standing up there um, wanting to implement the solutions we've known about um, that will work for decades. What's the one story, the one incident, the one moment in your book that you really want people to pay attention to, that that really centralizes what the book is about? Well, I... I mean, there's lots of different stories. I mean, I and themes that flow throughout the book. Um, really, what I sought to do is to reflect what my experience was within government and what I learned about how government operates. And I mean, overarching, whether we're talking about indigenous issues, other pieces of legislation, how our democracy functions, electoral reform. Um, Fundamentally, I believe, and this is reflected throughout the book, that good governance is something that we need to focus on as Canadians. And good governance requires honesty, integrity, and independence and a movement away from partisanship. And when we do that and work across party lines and uphold these values um, and make decisions based on the best information, the best reasons, and in the best interest of Canadians, I mean, that's what we want. That's what I have heard Canadians want. And, you know, making making decisions um, simply because we can gain advantage over another political party or ensure we um, gain power or maintain power is not in the best interest of Canadians. And the fact that um, we are so, and COVID has taught us this, interdependent and interconnected as human beings is why we need to work together in terms of these big decisions and issues that are confronting us domestically and internationally. I think the fact that 58%, the turnout, I think it was around 58% on uh, this past Monday for the federal election tells exactly that story that so many, so many Canadians just don't believe that's going on. Yeah, and I, and I think I, I mean, I certainly am among those Canadians that are concerned about the nature of our democracy and the health of our institutions. Um, we need leadership to revitalize our institutions, to ensure that there is less partisanship, more independence, and certainly eradicate blind loyalty to a particular party, a leader, or the prime minister. I mean, suppressing, as they did with me, um, you know, diverse world views, experience, and expertise simply because they don't fall in line with the objective of garnering more votes is problematic to sound decision-making, and we have to fight against that. Dr. Catherine Smart joins us. She is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thank you very much for coming on the program. Our healthcare system is in, well, it's under stress. I don't know if we should add DIS to that and say it's in distress. How do you assess the greatest challenge that is being faced by healthcare and Canadians who, who rely on healthcare today? Well, as you said, we're certainly at a low point, I think, in terms of how the healthcare system is functioning and especially how the people working in the healthcare system are feeling. 
you know, as we're deep into this fourth wave of COVID, I, I, I can see, you know, so many Canadians are exhausted and tired of this pandemic, which is totally understandable. But I think no one is more tired of it than the people working in our healthcare systems. And we're really at a critical juncture where we need our healthcare systems with proper investments to keep them moving forward and supports put in place for healthcare workers so that they're able to keep doing their job and, and remain in this industry, which is so vital for all Canadians. So uh, we, we've heard a lot about the uh, the stresses that the frontline healthcare workers are under, uh, under, under, and you've just pointed out pointed that out. But there's also concern about numbers of healthcare workers who are saying, "I can't take it anymore." and are either leaving the profession permanently or for some period of time. How much of a threat is that? I think it's a very real threat. You know, we already did not have enough healthcare professionals prior to the pandemic. And as you stated, we're now seeing people choosing to leave the system because they're so burnt out and are experiencing what we term moral injury from what's going on around them that they just don't feel they can keep going. Um, and it's challenging to replace healthcare professionals. You know, it's many years of education, training, and experience. Um, so it, it's not that there's a lot of people, you know, in the wings just just waiting to to join the team. So we absolutely need to address healthcare worker burnout and and make real plans on how to retain people and and make this a job that people want to do. Yeah, and Dr. Smart, the availability of healthcare. I looked at a global news story that came from our Manitoba. Uh, Global News office, uh, and I just want to read this to you. In August 2018, HSC, so that's the health uh, service in uh, in Manitoba in Winnipeg, had had a, a left without being seen rate of 8.7 percent, 8.7 percent, almost 10 percent of those who went to the ER left without being seen. By August of this year, that number had skyrocketed to 24.3 percent meaning nearly one in four patients who presented and were triaged in the emergency room left without seeing a doctor. If that doesn't speak to a critical mass situation, I don't know what does. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I've spent many years myself as an emergency physician at the Children's Hospital in Calgary. And and those patients, people that come to the hospital and leave without being seen, are always of high concern to providers because we, of course, worry they may have a bad outcome because they didn't get the care they needed. And I think that reflects how our emergency departments are being totally overwhelmed with patients. Uh, Wait times are increasing. We also know emergency departments bear the brunt of overcapacity in hospital because admitted patients remain in the emergency department which makes them uh, impossible to move people through the system and creates backlogs in eMERGE. Uh, and that, in turn, creates more burnout in the healthcare professionals who are trying to work in those departments and don't feel they're able to serve patients the way they want to. So what is it, uh, what is it that's needed? I understand that more money is required, and our healthcare system is, is, is growing, or at least the needs are growing, because our population is aging, and so we present more regularly for health care, and the pandemic has made it unlikely for some people to receive the care they require, even those who have diseases like cancer that they're living with. So what is it, what's required? The money, yes, tell us how much, and what else is required? That's a great question, and as you can appreciate, there's many layers to what's required, and of course, everything that's not working in the system impacts other areas of the system, so it does create a bit of a domino impact. One of the biggest challenges we have is access to primary care, um, and that's an issue for people with just day-to-day healthcare issues, and it's an even bigger issue for people with chronic or complex medical issues. 
if they don't have a regular doctor or primary care provider, they don't have a medical home to have those issues addressed and then in turn often end up in emergency departments trying to have their health care issues addressed, which then leads to the wait times, et cetera, that we were talking about before. So we need to really understand that problem and why we aren't able to recruit and retain enough people in primary care. And some of that comes back to human health resource planning. We know we don't have enough doctors and nurses in this country, but we don't have a clear plan about how many more we need, how to get them and how to deploy them effectively. So that's the building blocks, of course, is understanding that. Uh, and if we can overhaul that aspect of our system, it's going to have those downstream impacts of, of lightening the load on hospitals. Um, as you said, some of that means funding, more funding for doctors and nurses, more funding for training people, more investments in, in planning and in primary care to keep people working in those jobs. Um, we also need to see more innovation in terms of team-based care. That in- increases the efficiency of physicians and nurse practitioners when we can work in teams together. Um, so innovation there will also make a difference. All right. And then things in the community like aging in place uh, for some of our elderly citizens, that's another big issue that impacts hospitals when people are in hospital as opposed to being able to be supported in their own okay. home with a home care or having national standards for things like long-term care so that people can age in those facilities right. that feel safe in doing that. So there's many layers uh, to the system that really need to be addressed. Yeah. Sunshine beating on the good times, moonlight racing from the grave, string band playing more that honky tonks, pretty young thing going dancing in the rain. There is the most famous member of the uh, Wall family of Saskatchewan. And Rolling Stone uh, reviews Coulter Wall's Songs of the Plains. As a modern twist on classic country and western CNW, Coulter Wall is the son of the former premier of Saskatchewan, Brad Wall, who joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. How's it feel to be number two? <laughs> it feels great to be number two. It might be more <laughs> like number five. But we have he has two sisters, and then there's Tammy, my wife. So yeah. I'm I'm good with it, Roy. Yeah, you're number uh, five. Good song to open up this segment. Yeah, well, listen, I I really like his music, and uh, it reminds me of what country music used to be about, the sound. Roy, you don't get, yeah, don't get me started. I am so frustrated by the state of country music today. What you know, in order to get on the radio, it's really got to be pop music, as you know. And um, so there are a few that are still making it. The old are making more traditional country, and in some cases, Coulter's last record, one that he called uh, Western Swing and Waltzes, is a uh, uh, some of them are even doing Western music again. Cor Blund's never given up on it, of course. Cor Blund and the Hurt and Albertans. And Coulter's doing some of it, too, and a few others. And uh, We need more of it because, I mean, you won't hear it on the radio, but you, you, know, you can dig around and find it out. It's out there for sure. That song was uh, Sleeping on the Blacktop, and it, it conjures up what country music should be about. It really does. I agree with you. I, I, you know, I like some of the new country music, but I can't really differentiate between light rock and country anymore. Right, pop. But you said I shouldn't get you started. It's pop. It's sort of there's been this uh, move to really one super genre. Really, it seems to yeah. me. I mean, I'm not. A, I'm just a listener. I, I don't. Uh, 
not an expert by any means, but that's what it seems to me anyway. And yeah. I, I don't know. There should be, there should be choices. Uh, there should be some differentiation, and, and maybe I'm just old, too old. But I kind of I do like the older country stuff, so yeah. uh, I'm glad they're making it still. Well, you and I have been talking for about a decade, maybe longer, when you were premier of Saskatchewan. Now you've morphed to becoming a cowboy. What's up? <laughs> I'm very much a greenhorn. Well, we actually we do have a bit of a, a small piece of dirt we bought. Culture and I are sort of partnered on a on a ranching operation. We've had uh, a cow calf pair thing going for a while, even when I was still last year or so, still in the old job. But my nephew was taking care of those, keeping them alive on shares. So we weren't really doing that ourselves. But now we've also moved to the Cypress Hills, Saskatchewan side from Swift Current, Saskatchewan. And then right around here is where, where there's that ranch. And there's a lot of very patient uh, and helpful uh, actual ranchers who have been uh, been good mentors and coaches. As I am trying to learn something. It, it strikes me, Roy, especially after day three of a very recent it ended Tuesday, actually, recent three-day roundup where we're in the saddle for seven, eight, nine hours a day. It struck me that um, I maybe should have started before I was 55, <laughs> like well before I was 55. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad I did. Uh, and it's uh, it's another thing. It's it's more to learn, which is, you know, it, I think that keeps all of us young and in, engaged and enjoying uh, things and fulfilled. And, and so that's part of it in addition to the other private sector work I'm doing. But, yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying hard. Premier, uh, you were part of the Global News election night coverage. I'm, I'm interested in how you see what's, what's happened. And you're a proud Western Canadian. You're a proud Canadian, but you're a proud Saskatchewan, uh, born and raised son of Saskatchewan. You're a proud Western Canadian. What, what's the status? What's the state of the relationship between East and West, Western Canada, Eastern Canada, how significant, how great is the divide? Well, the divide is significant. Uh, and if, if not between fellow citizens, then certainly between the federal government uh, and the one that I guess has just been reelected, although 31% of the vote doesn't sound like much of a reelection, but certainly they'll form the government. I think that's where the divide is, Roy, and it's, it's, it's not going away. Um, you know, and there's there's a couple of reasons for it. I think people are realizing that absent any meaningful Senate reform, uh, which is just not going to happen because the amending formula for the Constitution that would be required goes to Queen's Park or the National Assembly of Quebec. And it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So absent that, what we have effectively is a country that is run by a parliament that's really just the one house it's not by uh, bicameral meaning two houses because the senate is it's not really a thing so we have a de facto unicameral uh, house that's constituted basically on a representation by population formula what does that tell you it tells you that you know the center of the country maybe throw in vancouver they're going to call the shots they're going to make the decisions and uh, and i think that is uh, that realization plus the policies that have come from the liberals the anti resource and uh, uh, sort of anti-Western economy policies from the Trudeau government are, and then the carbon tax, of course, is uh, is sort of exacerbated the situation. Yeah. I'll never forget that uh, premier's meeting that Mr. Trudeau attended, and he had waxed poetically about how they were going to take money from the Saskatchewan farmers, and then how they were going to give it back to the Saskatchewan farmer, and you turned your head sideways and looked at him and said, so what's the point? Yeah, I did. 
Yeah, there were some moments there. I guess I wasn't long in office for his time as prime minister, but there was a few interesting meetings. And, you know, think about this, Roy. We're, we're, we're already seeing the inflationary pressures caused, notwithstanding whatever rebate program the Fed's come up with. We're still seeing the inflationary pressures caused to, for families to heat their home, for groceries, really for everything, for businesses. Uh, and it is underpinned certainly in part, well, there's a massive amount of stimulus in the economy. So there's there's that that's causing sort of inflationary pressures too. But the carbon tax at what is it, fifty bucks a ton right now is part of that. Trudeau's gonna take it to hundred and seventy dollars a ton. Yeah. And I and I wish during the election campaign and maybe the conservatives felt that this couldn't go there because for some reason the Canadians or the belief is that Canadians want this carbon tax in the majority. Um but $170 a ton. There is not a rebate shell game policy that any government could figure out that will protect our economy, that will protect families from the ravages of that. And then consider, you know, how, how lame the end game is of, the, of this carbon tax, because really that's the principal element of the federal liberals' plan to fight climate change. It's all focused on domestic emissions. You know, that carbon tax do anything about global emissions across it's just about ours. And our emissions are around 2% of global emissions. So if the federal government is successful in achieving their goals, if I wanted a 30% reduction of 2% of global emissions, if they're successful, uh, you know, it'll save the planet not one iota. And secondly, that will be, de- you know, devastating to the economy. We, we, we seem to, we didn't even have a debate on it. Oh, well, all you have to do, Premier, is have a no. look at the UK, where the energy crisis, the energy shortage, uh, has caused uh, is causing seniors to ride buses all day so they can stay warm because they can't afford right. to heat their own homes. And the British charity said a hundred thousand people are going to die because of that. You know, it's true. I don't, I don't, I, again, the Conservatives had to they, they sort of threw it down with this carbon tax and that, that air miles program. I can't, I don't understand it, but. And it's not as high. I think it's the, the the level of the tax is certainly not as high. But I, you know, um, I just think uh, nobody was willing to have that debate and discussion, and remembering that we're going to do all this to save the planet from a third of two percent of global emissions, yeah. rather than a much bolder. I mean, we could be bolder than that, Roy. We could, as a country, we could have man moon mission kind of language around investing private public investment in technology like the CCS technology that. We have in Saskatchewan and, and now in Alberta uh, that could actually help places in the world that are still burning coal. And there's, it's not just Asia, you know. It's uh, it's Australia, it's Germany. Right. So it's frustrating. I, you know, I would say this, Roy. Just to and I have a, I have about twenty seconds. I have about twenty seconds, Premier. I only have about twenty oh, seconds. Well, Please go ahead. Go ahead. Conservatives uh, have a strong Western platform plank uh, in their in this current policy platform they fought the election on. But they didn't tell anyone about it. So, you know, I, I don't think the conservatives should be changing their leader right now, but they really need to reach out and say, look, we, we had a strong platform for Western Canada, um, and maybe they ought to stop trying to win in Quebec, because it just ain't happening no matter what they do. You know, that embarrassing bow to Bill 21 right. or endorsements from Legault didn't help. Maybe it's time to, to fashion a new strategy uh, to win the next one. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.